Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Jonathan Coopersmith about his new book, Faxed, The Rise and Fall of the Fax Machine. This came out in 2015 with Johns Hopkins University Press. Now, what Coopersmith does in this really fascinating book is he takes us through the chronological story, the rise and fall, the successes, and more often than not, the failures of facsimile technology from about the middle of the 19th century through the end of the 20th century and beyond. So it emerges in a context of this real battle over patents um, and patent technology in the 19th century among some really interesting figures um, in Britain. And Coopersmith takes us all the way to the virtual eclipse, if not total eclipse, of faxing machines and faxing technology in the worlds that many of us are comfortable in now, of email and the internet, podcasts and PDFs, etc. Now, along the way, what winds up happening is this story of a machine that might not immediately seem like it's a very important part of our lives right now and thus part of our technological history, winds up being the story of the democratization of technology, of America and Japan and technological transfer um, across and between them. It winds up becoming the story of the power, the real transformative power of standards and regulations and much, much more. Um, There's some really interesting stuff in this book on newspaper technology and newspaper communications. Um, This is also a really important chapter in a history of visual technologies and visual studies. So there's a lot going on here around um, and that emerges from this machine that Cooper Smith really expertly and very, very clearly takes us into and opens up for us. So it's a real pleasure to read the book, and it was really, really a pleasure to talk with Jonathan um, about it. Um, Thank you, as ever, for listening. Um, I really appreciate that, and, and I hope you enjoy the conversation and have a chance to pick up and enjoy a reading of the book. I'm here today to talk with Jonathan Coopersmith about his new book, 
Faxed. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Jonathan, and thanks for making time and space to talk with me today. Well, thank you for in, for inviting me to be here. So, Jonathan, let's start, as is uh, traditional for the channel, by talking a little bit about your background, and specifically, how did you come to work on the history of technology? Well, I was a history major as an undergraduate. I was one of uh, three students in our class in the History and Philosophy of Science program at Princeton University. As I realized, I was fascinated by technology, but I wasn't fascinated by being an engineer. Um, it was much. No, I, I I could handle a slide rule, not as well as 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 the best of them, but I could handle it. But I realized that I was more interested in the history of technologies than I wasn't actually creating new technologies. That sounds like a a very familiar experience. I'm also having done my graduate work in Princeton in the history of science. Um, I can sympathize with that turn from, you know, being interested in science to realizing, well, maybe about science and not so much measuring uh, dimensions of subulated gastropods and putting them into the computer and churning out data. But anyway, so yeah, so I think this is a, a familiar path, I think, for many of us who work in the field. So you started off in history of technology, and then you moved to work on Russia um, and sort of history of technology in Russia. Is that right? Right. I did my my dissertation on Russian electrification from the 1880s to the 1920s. And one, one of the neat well, the, the analogy I use for being a, a historian of technology is being a kid in a candy store. <laughs> There's just so much to choose, just so much to look at. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing, uh, you know, there have been some very good books on electrification in Europe, in the United States. Nobody had done anything on Russia uh, in, in English they had a fascinating role uh, of the state with the Soviet Union. So I decided to do that, and it was fun. So how did you come to work on fax technology and the facsimile in its history from your work on Russia? What brought you to this project that we're talking about today? What happened is that my mother bought a fax machine to communicate with friends in Thailand and in Russia. Um, and I thought, you know, here's this machine that's so simple, my mother can operate it, and yet so complex it can communicate automatically around the world. And I, I, I should add that uh, no one in my family is really technologically competent. Um, when my father died, we found a you know, in his closet, you know, a stack of answering machines. Uh, this is back when they were really answering machines, physical machines that used tape. And when the tape ran out, he went out and bought a new machine because he didn't know to rewind the tape. Uh, so not just my, you know. And you know, I looked a bit, you know, I said, fax machine, this is interesting. I looked at it found that it had a history dating back to the 1840s that nobody had really explored. And I realized that I could uh, do a history of the fax machine because it would follow the two rules of doing research. You study the unstudied to make a contribution, and you study the interesting to keep your sanity. 
<laughs> so in in the um, introductory parts of the book, I think in the preface and in the introduction, you talk a little bit about the kind of research that you did um, that you had to bring to this project. And it sounds like you had the opportunity to go all over the place and work in all kinds of different collections um, that were very spread out in order to research the book. So for you, what were some of the most notable aspects of that research? And were there any places or collections in particular um, that you felt were particularly formative for the project or particularly notable in some other respect in terms of your work with them? Probably the most interesting place was working in Switzerland at the uh, library of the International Telecommunications Union where librarians would bring out these carts just filled with technical reports and standards. And uh, uh, looking through the, you know, again, big bound volumes, and I'd have to go through the entire volume to find what little there was on facts. And, uh, and I realized after a few days there just how much, was, how much work was being done on competitors to facts that never worked out. It, it gave me a good appreciation of you know, how wrong people can be uh, in their expectations for the, for the, for the future. Um, one of the neat aspects of doing research on, on faxing uh, was that uh, almost everybody that I talked to, and now anybody over a certain age, you know, they would literally stop me and say, oh, let me tell you my fax story. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's you know, very different response when I was doing Russian electrification. People would stop and say, well, that's interesting, but what do you think about Yeltsin? Right. Uh, <laughs> and now they'd say, that's interesting, but let me tell you this. Uh, because, you know, it, it, the fax machine is a technology for a lot of people really changed their world and they could really re, 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 relate to. So I found that um, a lot of my a lot of the, my informal research, some of my best leads, came from people uh, who talked about how faxing changed their lives or what they did. And uh, you know, was able also to talk to a lot of engineers uh, and, and managers who had worked developing faxing, and they were very, very helpful too. So the book um, tells a story of how that came about, right? So the book tells a century and a half long story of facsimile technology and the fax machine that moves chronologically. And there are four major themes that are going to bind all of these examples and all of these chapters together. And I'll just relate them um, pretty much you almost using the wording, right? That's right in the introduction because I think it's particularly clear. So one of the themes is the inadequacy of technological accomplishment to assure market success. So a lot of the story is going to wind up being about markets. Um, another theme is the role of visionaries and the persistence of innovators, patrons, and others in the face of failure after failure. So the history of facts is very much a history of failure, and we'll talk about that. The third theme is the impact of aspects of mass culture and commerce that might on the face of it seem unrelated to facts technology, but are actually deeply formative for this history. And then the fourth theme that you point us to in the introduction is the ultimate unexpected breakout that appeared almost at the same time that technological obsolescence, as you put it, became 
became almost inevitable. So these are some themes that are going to follow us through as we explore this story chronologically, and this story starts in the 1840s. You tell us here that the basic concept of a fax machine, uh, this is a machine that's going to transmit an image electrically, and we'll talk about the importance of images for this, has not changed since 1843. Now what happened in 1843 was that a Scotsman, Alexander Bain, received a British patent for fax technology. So let's start at the beginning. Um, can you take us into this context? Who's Bain? Um, what's the big deal with his machine? And can you tell us a little bit about um, what happened to him and his patent afterwards? Okay. Yeah. Alexander Bain should be one of these rags to riches stories. You know, he's, you know, he's this poor kid growing up in the middle of nowhere in Scotland, um, walks, you know, several miles to hear a lecture about electricity and totally breaks his internship to go down to London, which is, uh, which is one of the centers of electrical experimentation. Uh, devises electric telegraph, electric bell. Um, 1843 uh, creates a patent for uh, uh, what he calls a facsimile telegraph, which is uh, facsimile is the Greek for you know to to see far. So so Bain comes up with this invention, and this is a period of intense excitement and experimentation development in the telegraph world. Um, at this point, there's not a standard telegraph model. So Bain is just one of um, over literally 40 different uh, telegraph models or you know, approaches to telegraphy are 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 proposed in some cases even built and operated before uh, the Morse and Wheatstone models uh, become you know, essentially create standardized uh, te uh, telegraphy. And what Bain does is he comes up with a way to send an image, to send not you know, it, um, you know, over over the wires, as opposed to signals signifying letters, or um, and uh, it works, sort of. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's really interesting about this, right, is that it works. Um, he patents the idea, but it's, he doesn't really have a lot of success. And you talk about several reasons for this, right? He had lots of shortcomings. I mean, one of them um, is that, as you describe here, his ideas are sort of outpacing the technologies of the time, right? Um, he wasn't very good at the commercial side of business, and he wasn't a really easy guy to get along with. So there are personality issues, too, and he gets into this war of words with this other guy who also patents a facsimile machine, Frederick Collier Bakewell in 1849. And you have this great quote here. Um, Anyone who thinks engineering is boring work done by boring people should read their correspondence, right? So this is a, this is a heated argument over these patents for facsimile machines. Now, by 1850, both machines are doomed, among other things, because of competition um, from other technologies, including what's happening with Morse. 
And it, the technology continues to develop a little bit. You talk about what's happening in France. Um, uh, Caselli is demonstrating his machine for Napoleon. Um, this fails commercially, but the Japanese start getting interested at this point. Dot, dot, dot. You will hear more about them soon. But what's really happening um, of note by the end of the century, uh, things are changing in the 1890s um, and the 1900s as a result of newspapers entering the market. The newspapers become really interesting or interested in fax technology. Can you talk about that? Why are newspapers at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th getting so interested in fax technology? And what's um, significant for us to understand about that? Okay. Uh, the telegraph, even going back to the 1840s, revolutionizes newspapers because for the first time you can send words faster than you can send a messenger that you can have a newspaper story appear literally the same day or the next day uh, after the event as opposed to taking weeks or months for the news to travel by sea or by foot or by or, or or by, or by horse. In the late 1800s, the invention of what's going to become the photo cell um, uh, allows... Oh, actually, let me take that. Okay, they, the early fax machines, uh, Bain, Bakewell, Thomas Edison, they were black and white images only. It is... Uh, you could send a letter, you could send a black and white image. But with the development of the photo cell... Um, by Bidwell, uh, starting in the 1870s, 1880s, 1880s, um, you're able to send gray tones. You're able to send gradations of, uh, and that means that for the first time, you can actually send a photograph. You can actually send um, an image. And newspapers have been publishing photographs uh, for really since the 1850s, but now the fax machine offers the potential for the first time to send a photograph almost as fast as you can see a story, as you can send, as you can send the story. And for uh, competitive newspapers, that is extremely, extremely exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, go on. Okay. Um, Okay, so you actually have newspapers, um, especially in England, uh, spending money uh, to develop their own fax machines, but also urging the the state, uh, the government of Britain, the government of France, to create public fax services um, so that they can send uh, so that they they can send pictures, which, by the way, are a big hit with the public. Mm-hmm. Now, this is actually really, really interesting um, for many reasons. And one of the points that you make early on in the book speaks directly to this, and that is the history of faxing is actually an important part of the history of visual culture, um, in part um, or to a large degree because of this uh, relationship between faxing and images and photography and and the relationship of the two. And so I just want to mark this for listeners um, who might not otherwise see the book and think immediately, oh, faxing visual culture. I'm interested in visual culture. This is a book I should read. Uh, It actually is deeply about visual culture in in kind of surprising ways. And this starts um, early on in the book, even in the first chapter. 
So in the second chapter, as we move from the late 19th and early 20th century into the period from about 1918, as you put it, um, to 1939, facsimile efforts blossomed, um, in your words, across the globe, right? The number of fax machines is still really small, but this, the technology becomes increasingly significant. And in part, this is due to the interest of uh, newspapers that we've just been talking about. Now, you talk here, um, among other things, at um, about some technological developments in fax machines that are really changing um, what's possible to create, um, and then they're also changing the market in this period. Um, some of you talk about advances in electronics, in particular during World War One. So, what are some of the most important ways that fax technology is transforming in this period um, for us to understand some of the major arguments and sort of points of transformation that you're pointing to in this period of the story? Okay. The- World War I accelerates development of electronics significantly. Um, and the result of that is by the 1920s, 1930s, it's possible to manufacture a fax machine that can send pictures fairly reliable, fairly reliably over long distances. Um, it's still a complex, expensive machine. It takes a while. It, it, to send a five by seven photograph will maybe take half an hour or so. And it costs a lot of money. But uh, whereas the machines of the 1910s were as much experiments as anything else, by the 1930s, they're commercially feasible. And indeed, in the United States, uh, AT&T, uh, it started a commercial wire photo service in 1925. 1933 discontinues that service because it's losing hundreds of thousands of dollars and instead sells uh, uh, telephoto machines, these wire photo machines, directly to uh, members of the Associated Press new- newspapers. And from that point on, AT&T begins to make money um, not just by selling the machines, but by renting the high-quality long-distance lawns, where while the newspapers can offer same-day photography, uh, which is, again, a very, very important commercial sale, uh, very, very important uh, commercial benefit for them. It, it allows them to be competitive to, if you've seen any of the films, you know, the 20s or 30s or 40s, extra, extra, read all, read all about it. Um, it's not just the headlines that are new, it's the photographs also. As, and the photographs are changing also because newspaper or photography, the technology of photography is changing so that it's possible to get more action pictures. So instead of a posed formal portrait, here's a picture of an accident. Here's the picture of a plane crash. Here's the picture of a, of a, um, of a football game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so you have this newspaper photography changes there, um, encouraging, change, you know, encouraging greater reader interest in the newspaper. 
So you talk um, later on in this chapter about lots of different attempts to use fax technology for a wide range of kinds of applications. So you talk about attempts to use fax for weather mapping, um, for faxing documents from office to office, military faxing enters the picture at this point. Many of these early efforts, though, as you um, describe here in this chapter, kind of failed, right? They weren't successes, they were failures. Why is that the case? Why did so many of these early efforts um, ultimately not succeed? Um, Most of these efforts failed because alternatives, primarily the telegraph and the telex, um, as well as the letter, um, proved to be much cheaper, easier to operate, and often fit within existing, you know, office structures or, you know, um, administrative pr- procedures better than the fax machine did. Um, and it's important to understand that even as the fax machine is developing technologically, so are the competing technologies of um, telegraphy and television and even the postal service with airmail. Um, so fax is improving, but uh, compared to you know, uh, these other technologies, these other technologies, these competing technologies are improving too. And sending a telegraph is one to two orders of magnitude cheaper than sending a fax or sending a photograph, and sending a letter is even cheaper. So unless you have a product, which newspapers are the best example. Um, that can justify that that expense and that effort. Um, faxing is, you know, faxing still falls short. It can, it can. The military does use it to send maps. The um, the RCA did send ma- uh, weather maps to ships at sea, but there were alternatives that worked just as well, if not better, that were easier and cheaper. Now, from the very beginning of the story, as we briefly mentioned a little while ago, the history of Japan is an important part of the history of the facts. So we talked a little bit, or I briefly mentioned a little earlier, um, that a Japanese delegation actually um, first became aware of facts technology in the late 1800s. Um, This was thanks to what was happening in France. But what we have here in this period in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, is we have in 1926 the first Japanese fax system being developed by Nippon Electric. So can you talk a little bit about what's happening in Japan during this period um, up to 1939 of your story? Okay. The... um, In Japan, you see a uh, great interest in the idea of faxing because um, Japan has uh, three written written languages. Um, And for Japanese to use a telegraph system um, required either translating Japanese into Romanji that is to say, English version, um, and then transmitting that and retran and then retranslating the Romanji back into uh, kanji uh, in hiragana or katakana, which 
Again, anytime you have a translation process, you can have lots of errors or creating code. So uh, Telegraph worked in Japan, but wasn't that easy, where the idea of if you can send an image of the actual language, you know, of your actual, um, what you actually wrote, that would be much, much simpler. Um, uh, you did have Japanese firms in the 1920s invite uh, European firms uh, over. They looked at at and system. Um, you actually had a Japanese engineer, Niwa, work for um, uh, Bell Telephone Labs for a while. He comes back to Japan, um, hooks up with a Japanese new newspaper while working for Nippon Electric, and in honor of Emperor Hirohito's accession to, to the um, uh, throne, the newspapers had government permission to operate fax machines to send photographs of the ceremony throughout out Japan. And that, uh, that starts the process of what's then called picture telegraphy in uh, Japan. As Japan expands into China, uh, invades China in the 1930s, the army takes an interest in extending its communication lines and using faxing both to send photographs back home for propaganda, but even later using it to send information back and forth too. So you begin to see in Japan an independent, de uh, you know, independent development of fax machines based originally on Western technology, but very quickly developing uh, their own domestic versions and finding that they work, although in Japan, as in Europe and the United States, faxing is still far more expensive than sending a telegram or a messenger. Now, in the next period um, that you look at in the book, and this is in the third chapter um, that looks at facsimile from 1939 to 1965, I'm um, just kind of staying with this Japan thread in this period, you talk about the development in Japan of a community of fax engineers. So why, um, what's the significance of that? Why is that important for us to understand in order to understand the kind of narrative that you're telling in this part of the book? Okay. Yeah. One of the, the myths in the United States you know, is the heroic individual engineer. Uh, you know, you think of Edison, um, who's thinking great thoughts and comes up with great inventions. Uh, in reality, uh, invention, but more importantly, development, research, diffusion requires teamwork, requires lots of people working together. Um, but, um, and in Japan, uh, you see, starting with NTT, Nippon Telephone and Telegraph, um, the creation of a cadre of fax engineers and administrators who work for uh, the state-owned telephone company, who um, uh, who go out to private firms to work work for them. So you have a, a growing critical mass of trained people and enthusiasts who know each other, who communicate with each, each other, and can promote faxing within a fair, um, within a, a small but 
growing technological community. So in this period as well, um, there's a lot of development happening outside of Japan also. So in this period, market demand began for the first time, as you describe it in this chapter, to pull fax applications, though at this period what you call um, technological push still outweighed the market pull in importance. But technological push fails to translate into market pull. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about why that is um, in a few moments. Now, World War II in this period is really important to fax technology because it's providing, among other things, a new market for fax. So can you talk about that? How does World War II um, shape the market for this technology? Okay. World War II does two things. One, it stops... It kills the civilian market. Um, so, for instance, um, 1939, Bell Telephone Labs is thinking, gee, let's experiment more with office transmission of facsimile. Um, when World War II comes along, that stopped. But, um, but you also have much greater demand or uh, by in the United States by the Signal Corps of fax machines. And uh, again, the military doesn't know quite how many fax machines it wants, um, in a, um, but they know it knows it could be useful. And you see faxing beginning to play a role, um, sending weather maps, uh, which becomes very, very critical. Uh, in wartime, uh, especially for av- aviation, but weather maps, maps of anti-submarine activity or of submarine activity, uh, part of the anti-submarine. Yeah, try that again. Um, you, know, you see uh, the anti-submarine warfare groups in the United States sending maps of submarine activity back and forth. So you begin, you know, military. Uh, intelligence in particular depends on imagery. Um, you know, the reconnaissance photographs that an airplane takes uh, are useless if they can't be rushed to the commanders in the, in the field. So the military experiments with air-to-ground transmission of facsimile finds that doesn't work. But if you station a, if you put a fax machine in an air base, and then you put a fax machine close to the commander in the front, you can get, you, you know, you can send him or his intelligence officers, you know, very recent photographs up, 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 up to date. So there's, there's growing demand. Um, and one of the neat aspects of the military is that economics are not that important as opposed to a commercial business. So price doesn't matter as much. Plus, military is often able to assign, you know, more trained people, more technicians, more engineers to keep a technology operating than a commercial business could. So you see major expansion of fax production and fax demand because of the military. So you talk also in this chapter about what's happening in the post-war. So what's what's going on after World War II? And although there are major challenges um, to the development of fax technology, you talk about cost, speed, recording quality, and reliability being the major challenges here, there's still some really interesting developments in the technology. So you describe um, the ultrafax 
technology by RCA, right? Um, and also desk fax by Western Union. Now, this is built up in a larger market context where in the market that had been dominated by a need for the transmission of images starts expanding and into a new market that arose for the transmission of documents. So how is that move from um, a kind of market from trans for transmitting images to a market for transmitting documents importantly changing, if at all, what's happening here? What's happening is that people begin to think now, not just the fax engineers, not just the promoters, but possible users, such as um, Western Electric and increasingly businesses, gee, wouldn't it be neat if we could send an image of our data instead of telephoning it um, or telexing? Because um, and, you know, one of my favorite examples is some of the early adopters of these expensive fax machines for their daily administrative operations are electrical utilities that are sending dispatch orders by fax much more quickly, but also error-free, as opposed to a, to a telex. Um, even the Strategic Air Command introduces a fax system for sending out strike orders because it turns out to be faster and, again, error-free uh, to fax uh, an order than it is to um, put it in a telex machine, which means that you basically type it, you, you type it, then you check it for errors, then you actually transmit it. And with the telex, the actual transmission time is short, but the time needed to make sure that your uh, instructions are error-free yeah, is, 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 is much longer. So you see, uh, again, these are major, you know, also large uh, organizations with centralized offices that need to get specific information accurately to these sub-offices, and they're turning to facts. Um, and that's at one scale. Uh, at the other end, Western Union uh, starts to make these low-cost fax machines called desk fax uh, as an extension of the telegraph. And what they are is a very low-cost, very basic, very limited machine. It can't do much, but you can take a slip of paper in your office, write a brief message, and Western Union has done the research showing that most telegraph messages are very short. Um, so the fact that the slip of paper is only uh, a couple inches by a couple inches, nowhere near the size of a, of a regular piece of paper, but you can... That suffices for most people. You can make these machines cheaply. You can put it on a desk in somebody's office, and they can send that telegram anywhere in, in, in the world. Um, uh, what's fun with that is that not only does Western Union ultimately make uh, roughly 40,000 of these machines by 1960, but it offers options for businesses to create their own networks. And that's where some of the real fun comes in. As you said, you have newspapers installing uh, desk fax machines and courthouses and police stations to telegraph um, 
stories directly to the you know to their editors so they can be done not just quicker but error free so you, you begin to see users of the market experimenting and in most cases the experiments still don't work out because it's too costly or not as good as a telegraph but in other cases wow this is really neat look at what we can do Thank you. So as we move um, from this into the next period of the book, we move into a chapter called The Sleeping Giant Stirs. This is a chapter that looks at the period from 1965 to 1980, and this is a period that saw major, major shifts in the regulatory and technological environment for facts. Now here we move from the battlefield that we talked about in World War II to another kind of battlefield, and this is the battlefield of regulatory change. Regulation and the creation of technical standards here um, was really, really transformative for the story. At least that's how it seems to me as a reader, and then very, very important. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, what was, how were technological standards, or technical standards rather, um, important to what's going on here? You describe um, G3 as a standard in particular, um, being ultimately developed out of what's happening in this period with the um, emergence of regulatory standards for facts? Yeah. Basically, for most technologies, there's more than one way of doing something. And so when you do have um, uh, Xerox and Graphic Science and other companies introducing their fax machines um, by the thousands in the 1960s, uh, a lot of them are, are, are incompatible with each with each other in the same way for you know you know if, if you're old enough to remember um, uh, some of the early um, battles of um, computer standards in some cases battles for the classic standard of Betamax versus VHS both good systems but they were incompatible with the, with each 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 other um, the battle over standards um, would deter you know, often deterred a lot of a lot of customers or potential customers who said well I don't want to choose a graphic science if it won't communicate with a Xerox machine or what happens if I can't no if, if I decide yeah what happens if I can't communicate because I've got a Xerox you have a graphic science and some of these companies particularly Xerox but also graphic science which is a major competitor said you know we don't want standards because we think our tech you know we're going to dominate by market superiority um, without realizing that you know they might have the superior product but again depending upon how you define superior but most users don't care if it's the best product. They want to be able to use it to communicate. And uh, if you can't communicate, you know, what's the use of having a fax machine? You know, you can have incompatible standards for a standalone technology like a Xerox machine, a photocopier. But uh, a fax machine is a network technology where the more machines you can communicate with, the more useful your machine is. And the first two battles of standards, G1, G2, were essentially failures. It still had a lot of incompatible systems. Uh, G3, uh, which based on a Japanese standard, was 
the first standard that was really universal. Um, and that didn't just happen. It took a lot of not just technical development of creating that standard by the Japanese and later by um, American, European firms, but also the standard was developed in such a way that it ensured universal compatibility at a basic level, but it still gave competing commercial firms an opportunity to offer proprietary systems so that, for instance, um, your you know, your Ricoh machine could communicate with my Xerox machine, but you know, if you have a Ricoh machine and I have a Ricoh machine, we can do things that we couldn't do other, other, otherwise. So the G3 was really a major game changer. You've talked a little bit about um, the context of G3 that emerged out of uh, Japanese standards, right, and Japanese regulatory right. System and this is actually um, a really important part of this story. So in this period, you know, when we're still now in the realm of G1 and G2 in the 60s and 70s, there are major developments happening in Japan. Um, you talk about in this chapter the development of technology that could reliably transmit Jap- Japanese script, right? And, and we've already talked about the reasons why that was important um, and challenging. And there's also major patronage by the Japanese government of fax technology in this period. So for you, what are the most important things that are happening in Japan um, in terms of fax technology um, that we need to understand to understand what comes later? Probably the most important are background changes in tech, in technologies, communications technologies, printing technologies are improving greatly, um, and their cost is, their cost is going down. But what's also important is the Japanese government, uh, through the Ministry of Posts and Telecommunications, is promoting a fax industry. It's um, you know, it, but it's doing it. In a uh, in a very neat way, um, it, it's you know it's trying to you know it does do the standard government role of um, you know, encouraging development of specific networks and acting as a buyer, both of which helps. But it's you know the major Japanese role comes in 1977 when. Uh, the Ministry of Post and Telecommunications sets up this neutral commission to create the Japanese standard that will lead to G3. Um, and yeah, Japan is a you know, is both a cooperative and a competitive market. Or the you know it has companies with you know, a lot of the engineers have spent time working with each other. They may have worked at NTT um, before moving to. Matsusta or Rico or um, others, but you know, companies fight extensively for market share while at the same time cooperating. It's, it's a it's a really tough balancing act to do, but the Japanese did it very well. The Japanese um, uh, Japanese telecom deregulation started later than what happened in the United States but occurred much more abruptly. So you had a more competitive environment. Um, and you know, the, uh, that competition uh, helped 
create uh, major innovation in um, in Japanese uh, facsimile technology as these firms competed against each other, offering new features, dropping prices. As the prices dropped, more people bought fax machines. And again, fax machines are much more useful in Japan because you know, anybody could just write a note and send it over a fax machine. You didn't need to use a keyboard. Um, so you see, you know, by 1980, uh, the Japanese per capita are the world's largest users of fax machines, and increasingly the world's largest manufacturers of fax machines, replacing the United States. One of the things that you point to as a potential factor in explaining that disparity is the rise of home faxing in Japan, and that wasn't the case in the U.S., right? And that really significantly impacted the market um, and the success ultimately of faxing in Japan in contradistinction to the U.S. Now, this isn't a period um, that you call the giant awakes, 1980 to 1995, and it's a fascinating period in this story for all kinds of reasons, technological, artistic, political. We see this emergence and this kind of explosion of um, applications for fax technology in really fascinating ways and really um, important in terms of global politics, um, these ways were. So in the last decades of the 20th century, as you describe it in this chapter five, as you put it, market pull finally surpassed technology and the market for fax technology grew. So this was the period where um, the codification of G3 standards that we talked about earlier was happening. Machines are becoming faster, smaller, cheaper, better. Um, faxing is changing how people experience their work lives, right? It accelerates the work cycle. If you can fax from anywhere, the distinctions between work and non-work start becoming really, really blurry. And any of us who are academics right, can understand that, I think. Um, but also um, what's happening um, as a result of all this and at the same time, is what you call the democratization of faxing technology. So that's important here. So let's talk about that. How, for you, um, is faxing becoming democratized here? And what are the most important uh, implications of that for the story? Okay. What happens is that faxing, not only, not only do fax machines become cheaper and smaller, but um, they're packaged so well, they're black box, so that you, know, you don't know what's actually happening inside, but you don't need to because the smarts are in the, are in the machine, which means that um, you know, if you've got basic office skills, you know, if you can dial a phone, if you can operate a photocopier, you can use a fax machine. And because they're increasingly reliable, you don't have to worry about the breaking. You can, you, know, you can use them. You can abuse them. But what that means is that people uh, are now free uh, to experiment, to come up with new uses, to, uh, to create new businesses, uh, new app applications in ways that the original market promoters could not. Um, you know, no, you know, uh, and, and you see people coming up with all sorts of ideas, including, especially in the political sphere. The fax machine turns out to be an amazing organizing tool for people. Um, you know, it used to be, 
you know, if you wanted to mobilize a group of people, you had to have a telephone tree. You had to spend a lot of time communicating. Uh, faxing, you know, you can send out a blast fax to a hundred people, and they can send out a, to a hundred people. So it's it's a wonderful political organizing tool. Um, and you saw that uh, in Tiananmen Square in 1989. It turned out to be less effective than uh, it's um, than a lot of the Western observers thought. But you see faxing being used extensively um, as a long-distance form, short-distance form of communicating and people coming up with new businesses. Uh, so by late 80s, early 1990s, uh, if you're in Japan and you think, well, I want to go skiing today, but what are the conditions uh, at the various re- resorts? You can get that inf- information. Um, so, so it's you know because the technology is low cost and easy to use, that allows more people to use it, to experiment with it, and to come up with applications that nobody would have thought of earlier, nobody could have thought of earlier, because the cost was prohibited um, and not enough people had 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 fax machines. It's it's a very very exciting time. And you can see that by some of the enthusiasm of the articles, of the applications of, of that period. So uh, along the lines of that enthusiasm, in addition to the use of political faxing in um, the case of Tiananmen, as you, as you described, and in the case of the Soviet Union. So there's a really wonderful description in this chapter of successful um, political faxing um, in the case of the Soviet Union that I think is well worth reading. So I just want to mark that for listeners. You also have descriptions of fax art, so artists using fax technology to create work, and also the potential drawbacks um, that emerge as a result of this widespread availability of the technology. So security risks um, start raising their heads or rising, uh, raising their, there start being security risks, <laughs> basically, because so many people have access to this. So security becomes an issue. And also junk mail um, in fax form starts being used. So there's some really interesting ways um, in this chapter that the kinds of features that are associated often with more contemporary technologies for us right now. So Twitter and Facebook and texting, um, you see emergent concerns with the same kinds of problems um, that surround fax technology in this period. So it's a really interesting prehistory within which to contextualize more contemporary discussions like the use of social media for political mobilization um, in the case of the Hong Kong umbrella revolution and and other cases like that. So it's a really important chapter um, in that respect and um, listeners should pay special, special attention to chapter five. But this is also a story about failure, right? And as we move to chapter six, um, we see the the sort of final chapter um, in a way of this technology. And this is a context in which faxing is ultimately going to be overcome by other digital technologies, the internet, texting, PDF technology. Now, you talk in this chapter about faxing in a way being its own worst enemy, in part because it had laid the groundwork for the acceptance of the kinds of technologies that then um, superseded it. So can you talk a little bit about that? What's happening to fax technology um, in this last uh, stage of the story as it's 
really as the market's changing and digital technology is coming into the picture in a renewed way? Okay. Um, several things are happening. First, especially for large businesses or organizations, vaccine is becoming so popular that companies are saying we need to automate these operations or is there a way to computerize these so we don't drown in a sea of paper um, or is there a way of handling you know, this huge flood of of faxes so that we can still op op operate. Um, so you see efforts to uh, uh, digitize faxing where possible, to computerize it. And again, you've had these some of these efforts in the 70s and 80s, um, but now they're far less expensive and they're far more they're they're far more effective in part because of advances in these digital tech technologies. Um, you begin to see uh, what's called facts on demand, where you could actually, you know, if you want uh, information on an automobile, you know, if you're thinking about buying an automobile, you know, you can fax this for this number from uh, advertisement for Ford, and they'll send you that inf 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 information. So you begin to see people turn um, using. You know, Faxes people used to rapid communications, getting information as well as sending it. Um, and for many people who have been working with digitization, um, Nicholas Necrofonte, for instance, um, 1995, in his book Being Digital, you know, basically says, you know, fax is an abomination, this is analog abomination. Um, you know, faxing doesn't make sense. You know, the world should be digital. The world, um, as it increasingly is, but digitization in the 80s and 90s has a lot of problems. There's a lot of incompatibility. There are a lot of, um, you know, and it's, you know, and for you to use an email system, you have to learn a lot. Give you know, one of my favorite examples. Um, very helpful newsletter that I use for a lot of. Lot of my research, EMMS, um, you know, it had in 1996 six different email addresses by which it could be reached and one fax number. Uh, so, major issues of, of incompatibility there. And, uh, you know, you've got folks like Bill Gates saying, well, you know, fax has these problems, but by golly, people like it. Why is this? Um, and what's happening is what you know, what will happen is that faxing, especially for large corporations, is going to be increasingly in you know, part of a, a a digital effort. But meanwhile, the shortcomings of earlier digital offerings like email. Um, you know, the creation of electronic funds transform, Microsoft Windows 95, uh, which comes with its own fax feature. These are going to finally or almost bring digitization up to the level or quality of service and opportunity that its advocates have been promising since the 1970s. Um, and that turning point, late, late 1990s, early 2000s, you begin to see people switching away from fax to, say, email, to PDFs, to other forms of communication that now seem easier or faster than faxing used to be.
And so as we come to the end of that chapter, we also come to a discussion that we won't have time to really talk about, but that I'll mention as a teaser for listeners who are particularly interested in the Japan story, a discussion of how things played out very differently, actually, in America and in Japan. So for listeners and potential readers or actual readers who are especially interested in the ways that this history intersects with that of Japan, um, you might want to tune in to the last chapter, chapter six, before the conclusion and look um, for details on what's happening there. So, Jonathan, um, we're now at the just about at the end of our time, and there's a lot, of course, that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, there's a lot going on in the book, and we've really just scratched the surface. Um, but is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had the chance to become readers? Okay. Um, two points. One, I'd just like to emphasize the failure is normal in technological change. Uh, it be failure for a range of reasons, but failure is the norm. Success is the exception. And part of the joy of this book, looking at this technology over 150 years, is seeing how many forms of failure, how many forms of success, and still people saying, this time it's gonna be different. Um, second point is I really need to thank taxpayers in many countries across the world for subsidizing the archives, the libraries that made this research possible. Um, you know, it's you know, one of the great aspects or something that made this work. One reason I was able to write this facts book is that uh, people, individuals, as well as firms, government agencies, created archives, filled those archives with materials so that decades later, a researcher like me was able to say, find the, you know, to find what uh, Frederick Bakewell wrote in 1850. And that was just, you know, without that base, history would be, would be impossible. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? What are you currently working on? I'm doing two projects. One, which I call uh, Conspicuous Construction, looks at the role of fraudulent and frothy firms in emerging technologies. And the second project is looking at the evolution of tech, of assessing technological mat maturity. Is, you know, how do you figure out when a uh, or how do you decide when a technology is ready to enter the, enter the marketplace? And both of those are based on the research on failure uh, that came from my from my tax re research. Well, best of luck with that work, Jonathan, and thanks so much for making time to talk with me about the facts book today. It's really been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure here. Thank you so much for inviting me to, to share something that I find lots of fun. And thank you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we will see you next time. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.